Hi, you're listening to the Inside Family Law Podcast, and we are here at the end of the AFCC conference, and what a conference it has been. Would you would you agree with that? Um, Dr. Robert Simon, who I'm sitting uh, with? It's been a really good experience and an outstanding conference. And before we get into some other things I want to talk with you about, um, what is it that um, you like about the AFCC? Like, what is it you liked about this conference, just in broad brush terms? Well, I, I, I really like the interdisciplinary nature of AFCC, sure. that it brings together um, all of the professional stakeholders, mm. the, the judiciary, mental health professionals, uh, legal professionals, mediators, parent educators, all on a level playing field mm. where um, we all come together and try to learn from one another um, as co-equals and peers. Yeah. And so the professional boundaries, I'm a this or I'm a that, are less important than we're all family law professionals mm. and we're all passionate about and um, committed to the well-being of families and, children's, uh, and children in the courts. Mm. No, so. it is nice. It's been, and I think this conference has been really special. I've really enjoyed it as well. Like the, the vibe has been really good. This conference has also been um, excellent because there were some plenaries in particular that were not in the bullseye of what you would think about a typical yeah. family law topic matter, but it was close enough that it really expands your thinking and it, it really gets you wondering and imagining and applying that, that thing which is a little bit different to what we do. So it's a creative process mm. and a synthetic process. Mm. Um, and so I think the more we bring disparate elements of knowledge and learning and thinking into our worlds, the better we do at what we do. Definitely. And look, the thing that I found interesting about this conference and one of the things I love about it is that it does bring people together from all over the world. Um, obviously, you know, you've got experience globally in many different countries and many different states in the United, in, throughout the United States. Um, but I remember you and I were talking earlier and you were saying you do quite a bit of work um, in San Diego, mm. in Hawaii, um, and you're here, you're here in Australia quite a bit sometimes. For I'm here about three times a year. Yeah, so you do have like, a bit of a global perspective. And yeah. um, I guess without generalizing, because as we were saying in our earlier podcast, obviously every family is different and you can't just say, well, all families in this culture are like this or all families in this country are like this. But I'm just curious to see, and look, this is purely anecdotal, but some of the different things that kind of come up in it. Because sure. you, you have that sort of overview, which we don't all have. See, I'm just always in Sydney, you know, most of the time. Right. No, I understand. And I think one of the things I really value and cherish about how my work has just un unfolded and evolved is that I've had the, the, the gift of being able to see how family law is practiced and how all over the United States and, and more and more increasingly in, in various corners of the world. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is that the problems that families face, the problems that children face, that the challenges, for example, to parents when they split up are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in Sydney or whether you're in New York uh, or whether you're in Singapore, yeah. the challenges are the same. You talk to family law professionals over the globe and the things that they're puzzled by, um, or the problems that they find difficult to solve are the same. Mm. Um, but what's different is the uh, different jurisdictions, of course, have different rules. Mm. And obviously, on a global level, different cultures look at families differently. Mm. So while the problems are the same, the way that the problems are thought about and what is thought to be a, a workable or, uh, or useful solution can really vary. Here's an example. So I live 
both in California and practice throughout California, and I live in Hawaii. And um, I, I recall for the, the, the first time I did a, an evaluation of a family where um, I believe it was the mother was of Filipino background. And I was preparing to go do a home visit um, to meet the children and do an observation in the family's home. And, and one of my uh, legal colleagues in Hawaii said to me, knowing that this was a new thing for me, this was a number of years ago, said to me, now when you go into the home, um, keep your eye on the grandmother, she's in charge. I didn't know that. So for example, the fact that the parent's mother sort of ran the home they lived in and, and her rules were the rules, her values were the values, um, the way that she, wanted, she felt things should be done is the way they were done. Had I taken my lenses from the mainland of the United States or from my little corner of California to that, I would have thought that, that the parent in that home was being um, mistreated, not mistreated, um, was, being, uh, was yielding their influence, their parental authority, their power, if you will, to their parent inappropriately. Mm. Have I not known mm. about that cultural difference? Mm. I would have seen it through a lens that didn't see it properly. It's interesting, isn't it? Right. Yeah. What you see is it's not just there, it's also what you're bringing to what it's you absolutely see. absolutely the lens that you have and, mm. and what, what your life experience is and what your professional experience is. Even within, the, even within a state like California, which um, has 35 million people, and believe it or not, while the majority of people live in large cities, um, it's a very rural state, and it's a farm state. Um, the, they call it, in, in the United States, they call it the salad bowl of America. So the majority of California is rural in small communities. And so what you see, for example, in families that grow up, children that grow up in a community of, say, 15 to 20,000 people whose parents are farmers, uh, and what their expectations are for their children is very different than what I would see in Los Angeles or San Francisco. Um, and here we are in California. So these kinds of things matter when it comes to honoring a family um, and uh, when it comes to really understanding a family and how to help it through the transitions and changes it's going through. Mm. And do you do um, family therapy work as well, like therapeutic work? Or more I, have. Yeah. I have. Um, I have. I no longer do for a number of reasons, but I did you know, for many, many years, about half of my work mm. was child family therapy. Mm. Um, so, and, and it was interesting, I did most of that in San Diego. Mm. Uh, San Diego is a very large military town. We have a, a gigantic Navy base. We have one of the true two uh, training centers for Marines in the United States. So we see a lot of military families and those families come from all over the country. And of course, military culture is a different way of life than you know, typical urban or suburban living. And so that was an eye opener too. Mm. You know, I remember during the first Gulf War, um, when the, many of the men and women, the, the, the mothers of children I was treating were sent uh, over to Saudi Arabia and eventually into Iraq, you know, to, to liberate Kuwait. Um, uh, what those families went through with a loved one being in harm's way was really eye-opening. Mm. And uh, the, particularly for children who were, whose parents were divorced and one of their parents was now away mm. 
and the other parent was no longer married to that parent, how do you hold a space for that, that absent parent who's serving? Um, how do you hold a space for that parent's relationship with that parent, particularly if the mother and father who are no longer married are at odds with one another? So how crafting those, it's very, it's very complicated and difficult. Um, but you have to think carefully about that because um, you know, when that parent is gone, not by choice, it's their job. And the, and the government sent them away for six months to a year, and they may or may not come back. And they may or not, may, if they come back, they may or may not be injured or traumatized. So how do you hold a space for that parent in the, in the, in the heart and eyes of the child? Um, and so it's these kinds of things that, that you have to think about each family in its uniqueness, and in particular some of the um, elements of their life that are different from your life. Mm. And you have to be open, you want to be open to learning about it, letting them educate you about it, and not making certain kinds of value judgments about it mm. in order to really, I call it honoring the family. Mm. Um, I have a strong belief that when a, a professional, be it a judge, be it a, a mental health professional as I am, a lawyer, um, works with a family that's going through these kinds of transitions, that we have enormous responsibility mm. to honor that family. Um, and. Uh, if we can do that, we'll be more successful. If we don't do that, we, we have the risk of doing great harm. I want to ask, I mean, it's interesting, in terms of children's views and perspectives and, you know, that, that whole balance between, I guess, protecting children and not involving them, you know, overexposing them, but then at the mm. same time giving them... Because when I did interviews for my first book, um, I interviewed some, like, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and they were reflecting on having had a childhood in and out of the family process. Mm -hmm. And one of them said that, it's kind of like over yet underexposure that she'd seen everyone and seen all these people, but she never felt that her opinions mattered mm. or that her view mattered. And maybe it did, but somehow the feedback loop didn't get back to her that it did, or she didn't feel res that it was respected in the process. So, do you have thoughts about that? It's a real complicated dance. Mm. Um, as I said in our earlier podcast, the, the the greatest risk to children when the family splits up is the con if the parents having conflict about the children. And um, Associated with that, of course, is if a parent is negative about the other parent to the children. Um, we want to keep the children out of the adult issues, right? Mm -hmm. We want to keep the children shielded from the, the, the things that the adults are going through. And let's be clear. Even a good divorce is a divorce in which there's disagreement, in which there's conflict and problems to be solved, mm -hmm. in which there's hurt feelings, angry feelings, mistrust. That's normal in divorce, it's normal. Mm -hmm. And so you wanna keep the children clear of that. And the, the trick is how do, you keep, how do you help the children understand what's going on? How do you help the children understand what's impacting their lives? How do you just listen to their hearts and allow them to tell you what they're going through in a way that um, is helpful to them and not harmful to them, mm. okay? Uh, I remember as, as my children were growing into adolescence. Uh, adolescence is a time where kids, of course, begin to really form their own opinions mm. about all kinds of things in the world. And even if their opinions, in your view, are wrong or are objectively wrong, part of the task of the parent of an adolescent is to honor that child's perspective and point of view because it's theirs and it's part of their individuating and becoming their own person. 
So I recall um, one of my sons was having some struggles with my co-parent, the kid's mother, and um, the way in which he described the struggle to me reminded me a lot of some of the struggles I had when we were married. Um, and so he was telling me about them, and it was a challenge to me to validate his perceptions without drawing him into my own concerns or, or um, feelings about their mother. Mm. That was a real, real tic ticklish dance. You want to, um, and you want to validate their perceptions when their perceptions are right. Um, but what if validating their perception can also be experienced by them or by somebody else as not supporting their relationship with the other parent? So it's a dance. And I don't know that I have any... One right answer, yeah. yeah. I, there is no one right answer. It, it, it's really about, for me, when I, when I teach parents this stuff, um, it's really about teaching them to come from a whole place of... of it's about their intention. It's about what they're trying to accomplish, and I think if you if you put your intention front and center, and and your intention is whole, and your attention is child centered, I think your words and your actions are quite likely to follow appropriately. Mm. But you're going to make mistakes every time. Okay, mm. and I teach parents, and I, and I learned as a parent, not just as a parent of, 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 in divorce, that when you make mistakes, it's also a learning opportunity to show the children. How, how it's okay at times to not be perfect, mm -hmm. right? And, to, and, and children look up to their parents and their parents are sort of, at certain points in development, somewhat godlike. And at other parents, they're somewhat devil-like. Um, <laughs> you I know, love that. That's right? Really, it's, the, yeah. it, it's the truth. You, yeah, know, you're, you, know, you, you know everything when they're eight, nine years old and you know nothing when they're 14. And, um, but when they're young and, and um, you make a mistake acknowledging I shouldn't have said that to you. Mm. Um, or uh, I'm really sorry that I raised my voice and yelled it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't necessary. Shows your children it's okay to make mistakes too and to own them. Mm. Mm. Right? So, yeah, yeah. No, it's a hard one. I guess I meant also in terms of more like, I don't know if you have a view about this or if you do, if, if you're comfortable expressing it, like in terms of the court process, like how do you have a view about how children's should have a voice in the court process. I do. Um, let, me, let me first say this about the court process. We need courts. Um, but I, I always believe it's, it, it, it's, it, it's I, I aspire for every family to solve their problems outside of court. That's my aspiration. Aspirations are never achieved. So we need courts because when, when parents can't solve their own problems, somebody needs to um, determine what the rules are going to be. Um, what we know from research is that children um, want to be heard. Children accept whatever happens better if they feel they've been listened to, if they feel that their voice has been heard um, carefully. Um, most children don't want to make the decision, but they do want to, <laughs> they are the prime stakeholder in that. So they, they want to be heard. I'm um, a, a big fan of uh, somehow bringing the child's voice into the courtroom. Mm. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, and, and you know a lot of people think about the way you do that is you put a child on a witness stand. Sometimes I think that's okay. In certain situations, that's appropriate. But there's other ways to bring a child's voice in, and I think it's essential to bring the child's voice in in every case where 
um, the court is going to make a decision about the best interests of the children. So here in Australia, of course, you have independent children's lawyers, which are really valuable. Um, there are mental health professionals who might be appointed by the court to interview a child and, and inform the court about what the child's going through and what the child's thinking, feeling, worrying about, fearing, losing sleep over. Uh, there are family report writers and custody evaluators who meet with children, interview children, and reflect their voice in their reports. Uh, so I, I, I do think that that's important. Along with that, uh, one of the reasons I sometimes am worried about putting children on the witness stand is because lawyers don't know how to interview children. And the way that courts work when you're actually in a hearing, in a trial, the way that answers are, are, the questions are asked and answers are given is a sort of very formal, sort of odd, arcane, kind of stilted mm -hmm. thing. And the way that questions are asked are not the way you would normally ask questions of a child to get a good, valid response. So I worry about that. Um, and I worry about when judges say, I'll question the child, but the judge doesn't know how to talk to children. Um, so that's where mental health professionals come in. That's where independent children's lawyers come in. People that know how to do this, that do this for a living, um, and can talk to children in ways that make them feel safer, that make them feel honored, and that don't, that, that get responses from the children that are more likely to be how they really think and feel versus um, responses that the children are giving because they think that's what we want to hear. Mm, they're giving what they think the other person wants to hear. That's yeah, right. Sure. That's right. So it, 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 part of that, for example, is knowing the age of the child and knowing if that's an age where a child is likely to, to be very focused on pleasing the adult. Mm. I'll give you an anecdote. Um, many years ago, I was involved in a case in California, uh, and this child was resisting seeing her father, and the mother very much wanted the child to be heard. And the judge decided that he would meet with this young lady, she was I think nine at the time, and meet with him on her, meet with her on his own. Mm -hmm. So the, the, he asked the child to be brought to the courthouse, the child was brought to the courthouse, he took the child back into chambers. And they were gone about an hour, two hours. Um, then the child left and the court resumed and the judge said, had a great interview with the child, learned a lot, great kid, blah, blah, blah. Next day we're back in court continue the trial. And I learned from the mother that the child had been terrified. Mm. Why? The judge was trying to put the child at ease. And what the judge did was gave the child a tour of the courthouse. And part of what the child was shown in this tour of the courthouse was the lockup, where, because um, this was a juvenile and family court, oh. courthouse, was the lockup where juvenile offenders were kept in holding cells when they were being brought into the courtroom. And the judge was just showing the child this, this is this, this is this. But the child felt that the judge was saying, if you don't give me the right answers, I'll put you in a cell. Oh, okay. Okay? That was the child's unique experience, mm. the individual experience. And so the child, what the judge interpreted as the child being a great, uh, easy child to talk to and giving real really good information turned out not to be. So, but I think the child's voice is essential. This is about children. Mm. And to, to decide on the best interest of a child in a legal proceeding without some element of the child being heard seems to me to be just blatantly illogical mm. and disrespectful.
Mm -hmm. Okay? Children are whole people. They're, they're, they're little people, and they're maturing, but they have just, they have the same dignity and human rights as anybody else. I love that. Yeah. And we often don't realize that. It's true. It's still that kind of old view that, that we just own our children, that ownership on their, just, you know, cut them around, cut them here. You've got to remember they've got their own personhood. They do. Their own rights, you know. They do. From the moment they're born, mm. they have full rights of anybody else. Mm. If somebody harms that child, they're in trouble with the law, even though the child may be two days old. Mm. So we often forget that. Mm. And and I, I, I see sometimes and worry sometimes that some legal proceedings and certain lawyers or judges almost see the child's voice as an annoyance and a distraction mm. you know and um, it's actually the child's voice that helps to clarify the issues I really love that too that's been it's been so great speaking with you thank you so much you've been really generous with your time so we thank you it's an honor and a privilege to to be a part of this and I really I value the opportunity to Talk to you and, and talk to your listeners and maybe help them understand and, and work through their challenges better. Thanks so much. Thank you, Dr. Robert, Dr. Robert Simon, speaking with us at Inside Family Law. Um, and it's the end of the conference. It's now nighttime and everyone's going home. So on that note, I will say goodbye to you listeners. And Thank goodbye, you very everybody. much for listening. <laughs>